Six more weeks of winter, says the groundhog. And uh, we are about six messages away from finishing the book of Hebrews. But I'm particularly excited about the next three weeks. uh, Because we are going to be talking about family. Interestingly, about uh, two weeks ago, Pastor Connor was very in touch, especially with the younger families in our church. He mentioned to me that he feels like our church could really use some teaching in the area of family life right about now. And then what do you know? As we finish walking through Hebrews, all of a sudden we arrive at an entire section of Scripture on how to do family life better. Just what we needed. God is good. Amen? Now, some of this will be more about how to have a better church family or spiritual family, but as was the case last week, there will also be plenty of application for our natural families because as followers of Jesus, the two always go hand in hand. In fact, we will draw out 12 admonitions, not all today, just before anybody panics, um, 12 admonitions that can be applied uh, to both types of family, and we'll be uh, covering these over the next several weeks. It's interesting that the Bible refers to the church in family terms, isn't it? I mean, for those of us who've been in church most of our lives, we don't talk, we don't think about it, but we should. As followers of Christ, committed together in our local church, we are to function as a spiritual family, held together by our mutual relationship with Christ as our brother and God as our father. We are one specific spiritual family unit right here. Side note, This is one reason I actually think it's better to plant more and more healthy churches than if we were to try to make one church bigger and bigger and bigger. There comes a point where it just doesn't seem like a family anymore. And that's the truth of the matter. So we are family here at Go Church, and that's great. An equally important question, though, might be whether we are a healthy family or an unhealthy family. In truth, if you have a poor understanding of family in the first place, because maybe the experience of your natural family was not good, that is going to greatly impact how you view and how you function within the spiritual family, right? So, yes, we are a family in this church, but are we functional or dysfunctional? I'd like to think we're functional, but regardless, we can get better. And see, that's where you come in. How can you make this family better. That's what we're going to talk about. I do realize that some of you may be thinking, well, to be honest, this church doesn't really seem like a family to me. Fair enough. Well, let's talk about the reason. There must be a reason that some of us do feel like this is a close spiritual family, while others of us probably don't. Personally, I think it starts with commitment. You're not born into this family, obviously, so your experience is only going to be able to really start with a decision to join with the family, right? And so you really ought to start by joining the church. And we just happen to have an orientation to go coming up next Sunday night at my house. Sign up and show up. You'll be glad you did. Now, will that alone make Go Church feel like a family for you? Mm, It's a start. But to really seal the deal, you'll probably need to join a Go group and or participate in kids, youth, young adults, uh, men's or women's ministry. Uh, You'll need to find a place to serve 
to do your part with the family chores, so to speak. Uh, then you'll need to start tithing. Oh, there's that. Uh, from your income to help provide for the family needs. Of course, you'll also need to consistently show up at family gatherings on Sunday mornings if you are going to feel like this is a spiritual family. Oh, you say, that sounds like a lot. Well, family's kind of a big deal. And see, I can almost guarantee that every person who is doing most or all of those things has no trouble feeling like this church is a spiritual family. But if you have not or are not doing most of those things, you probably struggle with the concept. Make sense? Beyond all of that, there is also the fact that this family isn't an end unto itself. This family has a mission and a calling. That's why Jesus hasn't taken us home yet. Why? Because we have work to do here as his family on earth. This family is out to show the world what they are missing. One of the things folks are missing is the power of coming together as a family and the incredible fulfillment that comes from being a part of something greater than yourself. People are missing the joy of doing God's work together as a spiritual family. Let me try a little activity with you. What we're going to do is we're going to start clapping. And human tendency is, as every musician knows, to speed up. Try not to. Don't just get faster and faster, okay? Well, we're going to start clapping together, and we're going to try to stop together. Okay? Once we get clapping together, it might take us more than one try. Depends on how good you guys are. I'm going to try to stop us on the final clap together. So what I'm going to do before the final clap is just kind of big on it, okay? I'll go big, and that one's where you stop. Your hands are going to want to come back apart and go to the next one, and that will completely ruin it for everyone. You might be the one. I don't want anybody to be singled out, so try not to do that. But if it takes more than one time, it usually does. Don't feel too bad. Are you ready? Okay, here we go. Was that all you got? Can you clap louder? Get ready. Okay, we got to try it one more time. You're going to get it this time. You got to be watching for that. Okay, here we go. One more time. Perfect. Amazing what we can do together. Now, why are y'all smiling? Why does that feel good? Why are you feeling joy right now? It's because there's something awesome about doing things together. Even little things. All we did was clap and stop clapping in unison, and everybody smiled. Now, just think if we were doing something together that was a little bit more important. You can ask our connections team how they feel after making a visit or delivering a gift to a home of a guest. Uh, or you can ask those who have gone on missions in Nicaragua how much joy there is in building homes for people in need while also sharing the gospel. You could ask those who serve on any of our various ministry teams how it feels to serve with a spiritual family. See, when we do God's work together, the idea of being a spiritual family starts to be more than rhetoric. I think it's pretty amazing what this family can do. Honestly, and I, I especially love the grassroots ministry um, in our community that's now happening through each individual go group, coming up with their own ideas and doing their own ministry as 
families within our family. It's almost, it's just amazing what we can do. But it's also amazing what we can endure as a family. Amen? Remember COVID? I don't mean the COVID of now. I mean, you know, like big C COVID, like really, really bad. Man, that stunk COVID and all that went with it. Yeah, we made it. We made it. Even as a very, very new church plant, we made it together. Our love for each other grew through that. Um, we made it through all that junk together. I've talked recently about persecution and how it's coming and it's here. And let me tell you, the more persecution comes to us, the more we will need each other as a spiritual family. There's a time to circle the wagons, even though, even, even though the church needs to maintain an outward perspective. We can never forget our mission in the world, but there's, a, there's still a time when we need to hole up and find solace and, and sanctuary and being of one accord. We need that. Never forget that we need to comfort and encourage each other here at home, in our home, in the, the place where we gather together as a family. I'm going to just side, here I go. Uh, you know, the early church, and I'm talking the first uh, at least hundred, couple hundred years, they didn't really build church buildings. You know that? They met in public places just like we are. Or they met in homes or big homes or big upper rooms or uh, these symposiums, these places that they had. They, they, they met wherever they could find. Let's just, let's just put that out there, okay? It didn't really matter. Just wherever they gathered, they had a place. It's important to have a place to gather. All right. We need to come together and, and be there for each other. Did you know that the largest living thing on earth by mass is a grove of aspen trees in south central Utah? This grove of aspen appears to be a stand of many individuals, but in fact, each tree shares the same original root. And these trees didn't intertwine or join together over time. Rather, they are actually all part of the same root system. Considered by scientists to be a single living organism, this grove of trees is called, anybody know? Just trivia. It's called the trembling, trembling giant. That's what they call it. I don't know if anybody said it or not, but if you give yourself a pat if you did. In 2006, the United States uh, Postal Service made a stamp in commemoration of this aspen grove, calling it one of the 40 wonders of America. And get this, when wildfires take out large sections of this grove, the organism itself survives underground, with its root system sending up new stems in the aftermath of each wildfire. The grove is one body, and though individuals within it may get burned, they get to start over with help from the whole, and together, the whole organism both survives and thrives. Fires are coming again to the church. In fact, there's no doubt that for those of you actually living out your faith in the real world, you have already been burnt. But if you are a committed part of a church family, you are not left alone in your pain, and you're able to endure because we are committed to each other around a common purpose. There are benefits that come with it when you truly join the family, a particular family. It doesn't really work if you're just kind of ethereally a part of some family. There has to be real people that you're actually connecting with, right? 
for those benefits to be real. A better family, a better family. Today, our text is going to show us three keys to becoming a better and a stronger family. Let's read it. We've arrived at verse 14 of chapter 12. We're going through Hebrews right now. Starting in verse 14 of chapter 12 and through verse 17. Here's what it says. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. That there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. Now, it might not be obvious that this is all about how to be a better church family. But if you look ahead to where this passage is going, you'll see that is the case. Hebrews is a letter written to a church or perhaps a group of churches. The author is nearing the end of his letter where his concern for the health um, and the strength and the unity of this particular church family becomes clear. He knows that enemies within and enemies without are always seeking to tear apart the family of God. And most of us know that nothing has changed in that regard. Keeping the peace, whether in your church family or in our natural families, has never been easy. Remember the last two verses from last time about strengthening the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and making sure the injured limb is not put out of joint. It's healed. On the one hand, as I explained last week, this thought is connected to running the race and it has to do with how we respond to the discipline of God. That's how we applied it last week. But on the other hand, these verses may also refer to church members who are weak and who are in danger of being completely put out of joint, separated from the family. I actually think verse 12 and 13 constitute a masterful transition leading from the topic of God's discipline right into today's text and the topic of how we should treat each other in the church. In short, we are going to become a better family if we apply this section of Scripture. Better than what, you might ask? Again, I will point back to the context of the whole book. The new covenant is much better than the old covenant. In fulfilling the law, Jesus changed everything for the better. And so the church is a better family than was the nation of Israel, to put it bluntly. We now have a better way, and we have, and we are, a better family. I'll make that case all day, except I don't really need to because the writer Hebrews already did. The title of the whole series, A Better Way, and it is better. We are a better family. But beyond that, we have all of these admonitions to encourage us about how we can live out that truth. In other words, when we apply the truths of God's Word, we can become a better and better family. So let's break down our text into three applications. The first three of 12 truths we'll cover over the next several weeks. First, for a better family, this is your first fill in the blank if you do that. For a better family, pursue peace. That's number one. We get this in verse 14, which says, pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will ever see the Lord. Now, the context here, again, is definitely about the church, the New Testament family of God. While it is no doubt 
a good thing to pursue peace with literally all men everywhere. The more precise meaning here has to do with getting along within the church, particularly with those who, who are courting disaster uh, by, by considering a return to empty religious practice or sort of legalism. That was kind of the deal with these Hebrews all the way through the book. The original audience here are Jews who had believed Christ was the Messiah and as a result had left behind a lot of the previous practices of Judaism, but the author feels they're in danger of being pulled back because life would be easier for them if they did. So here in the text, the mature folks in the church, those who had embraced the theology of grace, are being called upon to pursue peace with those who are wavering back toward legalism in their immaturity. How does this apply to us? Well, generally the principle of pursuing peace applies no matter what it is that is getting in the way of family unity. Maybe sometimes it is exactly the same type of thing as what was going on with these Hebrew Christians. Maybe it's folks who are um, wanting to lead the family back to the way things used to be, or even more specifically, church members hanging on to a more legalistic approach perhaps influenced by various authors and speakers at large who are out there spewing forth the latest brand of empty, divisive nonsense. Maybe it's trying to force our own personal convictions about certain gray areas on others. Maybe it's the latest form of deconstructionism, which is always so easy to embrace in any field. Maybe it's a desire to go back instead of forward. Personally, I don't think these areas are a huge problem for us in this church right now. So how might we apply this text more directly? Well, there is an election coming up, isn't there? Heaven help us. I mean, it's not until next year, but you know how it is. The fight's already begun, hasn't it? Do you think that fight can't possibly make its way into our congregation? Listen, Assuming you are a part of the family of Christ, a.k.a. the church, let me remind you that your heavenly citizenship outweighs your earthly citizenship. Let me say that another way. The church of Jesus Christ should be more important to you even than your country. And certainly your church family is far more important than your politics. Listen, protecting the unity of your spiritual family is more important than getting someone else to agree with your political opinion no matter how important the issue. Learn the art of letting God change someone's mind over time, if indeed that is what needs to happen. In other words, don't divide over politics and particularly political celebrities. Oh, shall I be direct? Can we please not divide over how we feel about Donald J. Trump? Please, can we just not divide over those opinions? <sighs> Has it ever dawned on you that whoever prevails to be the final two candidates for president on both sides will eventually be thought of by half the country as pure evil? Modern media fosters hatred, period. Both sides. And when people spew hatred for someone you respect, that's a tough division to overcome, even in the church. Personally, I refuse to divide over differing opinions about other flawed people. 
I'm not going to divide over how good or how bad another person may be, particularly with all the misinformation. I need to admit that I may not be seeing that person clearly. They may be worse than I think. They may be better than I think, especially when it comes to someone I've never even met. But it's not only politics and opinions about pundits that can divide us, obviously. I mean, we have the whole vegetable and fruit debate. Can I just put half of that to rest right now? Fruits are vegetables. That's a fact. The word vegetable means edible plant, edible vegetation. Beans are vegetables. Fruits are everything that is a plant that you can eat is a vegetable. So that half of the argument, just get rid of it. The only question is whether it's a fruit. That's debatable, but they're all vegetables. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. There are so many other things we divide over, right? I've never seen a time when the church is being told what to do and what, who to be by so many countering voices. Preachers are being told what to preach. Did you know that? Uh, how many bandwagons am I supposed to get on anyway? Are you okay with our slogan? Which is because of love. Or would you prefer we change it to not woke? Go church, not woke. I know it's tempting, but no. You could hear a pin drop in here. On that note, if you want the sinful world out there to hear my message, I pray the gospel is the message they hear. See, I say a lot of things to the church assembled to encourage believers and to train the church in the truth of God's Word. Lately, I've been saying some pretty controversial things to believers to make sure our sheep do not stray. But listen, I do not preach to the world up here, not mostly. Generally, the only part of my message that is intended for the world is the part where I call people to repent and put their trust in Jesus to be saved before it's too late. That's my message to the world, John 3.16, and that, that they can be saved in Christ. It's good news. Not that they're wrong in one opinion or another about whatever social issue. Listen, changing their opinion won't save anyone anyway. And to be clear, I desperately want them to be saved. Do you? Why should we? Anyone? Three words. Thank you. Because of love. Back to the point, the church is in danger of being torn apart today over what our message to the world should be. Do you realize that? Are you aware of this? Boy, I am. You know, if you're new here, you don't know. You may not know. I say things. I say things. <laughs> to you. This is just one more way we could divide. Okay? And there are many other potential dividing points that I could mention. So, what is the message from our text today? What does the Word of God say? It says, pursue 
peace with all men. And the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Again, even though it says all men and all men is a good goal, the context of the statement is specifically about pursuing peace within the church family, with everyone in the church family, even that one guy, and even that one gal, even when there's disagreement, we are to pursue peace in the family, all, with all the people in the family, here in this church, even those who will or will not vote for you-know-who even with those who are too legalistic, even with those who think we should be more or less inclusive, even with those who think highly of the vaccine or those who think it was worthless, we are to pursue peace with all of those in the family of God, especially in our own family called Go Church. Hear those words, please. Pursue peace. Now, let me tell you about this word, pursue. As one Greek scholar put it, there's a sense of urgency there's um, an intense, an intensity of purpose surrounding this word, a sense of urgency, an intensity of purpose. About what? About peace in the church family. Now think back to the historical context again. The division that was developing when the, within the original audience of this letter had to do with something as foundational as legalism versus grace. Now one side was right and the other side was dead wrong. There really was no gray area on the issue, and yet the author says to those on the mature side, the right side, that they should pursue peace. They were to urgently and intensively pursue peace with people who were dangerously close to abandoning grace for ye old empty religion, okay? That's pretty serious. We don't, we don't have an issue quite that serious in front of us, I don't think. And yet God inspired and preserved this word for us in our church today, and so it is true that for our church family to be a better family, we must pursue peace in this almost hyperactive way. Even with those who are dead wrong about one thing or another. Can you do that? I know, it's hard. What happens, what happens if we only ever keep peace with family members who, who agree on everything? Uh, well, at best we'll have factions and at worst, we will eventually become a family of one. Now, notice, notice the second part of the verse, which says, and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. God doesn't just put things together like this in His Word for no reason. Don't miss the connection. How do we pursue peace? It isn't a simple decision to keep our mouths shut, though that is often appropriate, but rather at a deeper level, we pursue peace by pursuing sanctification. The word pursue applies to both parts of the sentence, by the way. We're to pursue peace. We're to pursue sanctification. The two are presented as a couplet because the former absolutely depends on the latter. Without sanctification, you can forget about being a peacemaker in the church. Why is this true? Because natural men kill each other, folks. It's what we do. Human beings, human nature is evil. Our nature is divide is to divide and destroy. What is sanctification? It's the process of being made holy, that is, like God, whose nature is to love and to heal and to bless. The best way to pursue peace in the family of God is to pursue holiness and not self-righteous holiness that looks down on others, but true holiness that actually comes from God and endows us with attributes like grace, mercy, love, forgiveness, humility, and ultimately the ability to lay down our lives or at least our preferences for others. 
You know what's one of the saddest things going on inside the bubble of Christianity today, in my opinion? It's a tendency to tear down Christian leaders. In fact, the, the tendency is to tear down anyone who would dare try to lead God's people. How dare they have a following? They must be arrogant. They must be flawed. Let's find those flaws and hammer them. Listen, I mean, we're a pack of piranhas sometimes as Christians. It's, it's easy to find fault, isn't it? Criticism is the easiest thing in the world. I'm afraid that a critical spirit has overtaken the larger family of God. It's disgusting and destructive. Thankfully, I haven't seen that here so far. Praise God. Oh, Lord, please keep us protected. But you know, one of the, the main reason that every single one of my sermons is not torn to shreds by bloggers and whoever else is that I am not famous, nor do I want to be. Within our particular family, though, how do we protect ourselves from people who come in with an axe to grind, an agenda to achieve, or a critical spirit? Well, in a letter preserved in inspired scripture, a letter written to a pastor named Titus, the apostle Paul said, warn a divisive person once, and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. Wow. Sometimes peace with one person has to be sacrificed on the altar of peace in the family. And by the way, you may need to apply that in extreme cases to your physical family as well. I'm sorry to say that, but it's true. By the way, who's being shunned here? Is it the person who has a wrong belief or wrong practice? No, it's the person who's endangering peace. In this church, we will pursue peace through sanctification, and so doing, we'll become a better family. Sometimes that sanctification will mean pruning. More often, it will mean someone grows enough to see where they've been wrong in their divisive and critical spirit so that healing can occur. One of the biggest reasons you need to be growing in Christ is so that we can have unity and peace as a family. The more each of us draws near to Jesus, the more we will also draw near to each other. It's a great principle for your marriage, by the way. Let's look at the second admonition from our text. For a better family, receive grace. From verse 15, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. Now, I do think the first half of this verse refers most directly to salvation. But the second half shows that the author continues also to address the importance of unity in the church. When he says, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, he's returning to a theme that weaves its way through the book of Hebrews. If you recall, when we were dealing with some difficult passages in chapter 6 and chapter 10, as well as a few other places, we discussed that it is possible for a person to have all of the appearances of being saved and even to claim to have been saved and yet to eventually prove that they are not truly saved. Saved. This is primarily what it means to say that uh, they have come short of the grace of God. One of the challenges of church is the fact that even though we are a family, we are not a closed family. In fact, we have a mission to add family members through salvations. They don't always show up and get saved on day one. So that means we will have people who are on the way to a decision. Those who have thus far come short of the grace of God because they simply have not yet received it by faith. 
Those individuals, though loved by God, do not have the Holy Spirit and therefore are not even able yet to be sanctified. While they are with the family of God in some ways, in reality they're not of the family, and yet they are here. It stands to reason that if we are not making allowance for this mixing of tares and wheat, as Jesus put it, the situation will create division. The logical solution is to see that they come the rest of the way into grace through faith. See to it, he says. I guess he means do our part as soon as possible. By the way, this is one of the main reasons I believe in church membership. Members at least profess to be saved and have been baptized as a show of good faith to that effect. Members have made a commitment to the church to live in the world with the testimony of the church in mind. The demarcation of membership also allows us as leaders to relate differently to members and to have different expectations for them than we would for those who make no such claims and who maybe even are still considering whether or not to surrender to Christ. While many who are not members of our church may well be saved, we don't know that because they have made no statement to that effect. And in short, we cannot hold accountable those who have not made themselves accountable to us as a church. If we did, we might be trying to hold accountable someone who's not even claimed to be saved, which would make no sense. Now, I don't have time to go, I, mean, I could do a whole sermon on this. I don't have time for that, so let me get back to the admonition in our text, which is that church family members should try to help others who are hanging out on the edges to follow through and not come short of the grace of God. And also that we should even watch out for members who are not truly saved. Because in any of those cases, there's a tendency to become bitter against God or cause bitterness in the church, especially through a prolonged rejection of His grace. Got to watch for that. Help people come all the way into the family. In addition to all that, which is sort of the acute application, the really the, the abs absolute you know, pinpoint of what He's actually saying to them at that time, I think we can see a more general principle here, which goes something like this. The best vaccine against, oh, oh, vaccine. Did I say vaccine? Vaccines can be, still, okay, never mind. The best um, inoculation. Have you ever played Password? I love that game. The best inoculation against division in the church is the grace of God. As family members, we're called to be agents of God's grace. They need to give, give, they don't, you know, in this case, they don't have to consent. Just give them a shot in the arm of grace when they need it. You know, we share responsibility for how things are going in the family as a whole. And the most important thing we can do for each other is point each other toward grace to make sure nobody's coming up short in the grace department. And that's a good question to ask yourself. Am I coming up short? on grace when it comes to my feelings and interactions with my church family. That said, this is actually not mostly about how you see yourself. This is about helping others have grace. Think about the opening words of verse 15. See to it. See to it. That's the NASB translation, which is what I mostly use. But in this case, I do prefer the King James, which says, looking diligently. 
The point is that the original language included a sense of intense personal responsibility on the part of family members. We are to look diligently to try to make sure that no member or potential member of this family comes short of the grace of God. The original Greek here is actually one of the words we use for overseers in the church, which we also call pastors. I think it's episcopae. I'm not sure what form of it. So one way we might interpret this is that, we're to faithful, is that we are to faithfully pastor each other in the church. We're to look out for each other. We're to search diligently to make sure that no one falls short. But wait, to make sure that no one falls short of what? Are we to look diligently to see that nobody falls short of some particular standard of behavior? Or, or that they believe the right thing about this or that? No, that's not what this verse says. This verse says we should try to make sure that no one falls short of what? God's grace. Now, remember yet again what was going on here. Among Hebrew believers, there was a battle going on between the legalistic religion of their past and this newer and better way, a grace-empowered relationship with God. You can see this also a few verses later in chapter 13, verses 8 through 9, where it says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. You may recall that in Judaism, they were not allowed to eat a lot of different things. But through a vision received by Peter and in other ways, God had clarified that these kinds of ceremonial cleanliness laws, such as what foods they were to eat or not to eat, were to be left in the past. He says, that's not where you're going to find your strength. It's empty religion. It's not really going to help. It is good for the heart, he says, to be strengthened by grace instead of that kind of stuff. For a better family, everyone needs to receive and continually be strengthened by grace. Look at all these phrases used by an inspired author of Hebrews, like be on the watch, help each other along, don't be carried away by other things, make sure no one comes up short. And again, the thing they are to be making sure everyone embraces to the fullest is God's grace. Ironically, this is the antithesis of what the old covenant Jews were saying they needed to do. They wanted the people to come back to the practice of Old Testament law as if that saved them and thereby to leave God's grace behind. The author of Hebrews not only saying don't do that. But he's also saying, try to make sure nobody else in your family does that either. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. Now, that said, what if they couldn't get someone to understand about grace? They were just kind of still wrapped up in some legalism. They just couldn't get them to come that way. That's when we need to go back to point one. Pursue peace, even with them. Check out Romans chapter 14 for more on that. I think it's the other one is 1 Corinthians. I think it's chapter 10. If you want more on, on that situation, moving on from there, what happens if overall grace does not prevail in a church? What happens if legalism or something else that causes division is allowed to have a foothold in the family? Well, verse 9 says that a root of bitterness will spring up, causing trouble and defiling many. The root of bitterness is an Old Testament reference that the Jews understood very well. Basically a reference to a contagious sort of apostasy, that is, a turning away from God and His family until they would be cut off completely. It's about turning away from God, which is ultimately where a lack of grace leads, especially in families. 
You can check out Deuteronomy 29.18 for further study on this, but let me get practical. Grace ought to be what we are all about. We ought to be about the busyness, the business of forgiveness, of forgiving each other. Because Christ has forgiven us. We ought to be about mercy and compassion and love of the brethren. But how can we do it? Well, just as pursuing peace is impossible without sanctification, so it is impossible to help others find grace unless we have the grace of God powerfully working within us. Listen, to the degree you receive grace from God, and only to that degree you will have grace to give to others. On a larger scale, our church will be as much a place of grace as its members are recipients of the grace of God. This is about how much we believe in grace as a family. How much do you believe in grace? Self-awareness matters. The way you think about yourself impacts the way you think about others. If you think you somehow earned God's grace because of who you are or what you have done, or that you probably deserve it a little bit more than somebody else, because after all, you've always been a good person, then you are coming short of the understanding of grace that God wants you to have, and you will likely, in one way or another, cause a root of bitterness to develop in the church family. At the very least, you won't be in a position to help others receive grace. We can only ever show people what we have discovered. Do you know the grace of God at a deep level? If so, see to it that you help somebody else. When enough of us become agents of God's grace, every root of bitterness will die off and the defilement of many will die with it. A better family receives grace and lots of it. Lastly, for a better family, walk by faith. From verse 16, that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. Let me briefly remind you of the story. We'll start with Esau's grandpa, Abraham. And don't miss the parallels back and forth between this natural family of God and the spiritual family of God now, the church. Back to Abraham, God counted his faith as righteousness and made a covenant that was the basis for the whole concept of the family of God on earth. The covenant promised blessings, and the idea was that certain descendants of Abraham would be a special people set apart to the Lord. This older covenant was passed down through certain sons, and the first of these was Isaac, who was the father of Esau and Jacob, by their mother, Rebekah. For reasons we are not given, God chose to pass the covenant on, not to every branch of Abraham's family tree, but only through certain chosen sons. God told Rebekah, who, by the way, clearly had a personal faith-based relationship with the Lord, that the son to receive this blessing was to be Jacob, even though Esau was the firstborn. God gave Rebekah this word when she prayed about having children. From that point, Rebekah worked behind the scenes to make sure Jacob received the blessing that meant the covenant would be passed through him. The promise of God would happen through him. It's interesting, by the way, that God told Rebekah what would happen, and then she worked to make it happen. Very interesting and very consistent in Scripture. One day when Esau was famished, Jacob convinced him to trade his birthright for a bowl of soup. The story reads almost like Esau had this one amazing moment in life 
where he got to feast on some really, really good red stew. And then it was all downhill from there. As a kid, though, I admit, I, I always felt like I could almost taste that stew when we learned about it in Sunday school. You know? But apparently Esau was pretty clueless about God, or more precisely, faithless. He settled for food over faith. Later, Rebekah helped Jacob get confirmation of this transfer of birthright by tricking Isaac into giving his blessing to him instead of Esau. This was all the plan of God, of course, but notice how it was brought about through the willful actions of people. Esau married pagan wives who did not know the God of Abraham. In so doing, he brought great grief to his parents. He had no faith, as can be seen, in how easily he traded in God's promise. Esau had no faith, and thusly, he did not make his family better. Beyond the Old Testament account, our text today tells us what to think about Esau. Remember, Hebrews is, a, Hebrews is a flawless commentary on the Old Testament, inspired by God, so we no longer have to wonder whether Esau was a good person or not. In verse 16, our text tells us that he was a godless and immoral person. He was godless and immoral because he had no faith in God. God's the only one that makes us righteous. Always remember that grace from God happens through faith because he who comes to God must believe that he exists and is a rewarder of those who seek him, as we just learned in 11, verse 11, chapter 11, verse 6. Think about what Jacob had to believe. What did he have to have faith in? He had to believe that God's covenant was real. Otherwise, this birthright, this blessing wouldn't mean much. We can also see Jacob's faith in the fact that after his first um, major encounter with God, he decided, you may not remember this, but Jacob decided just out of the blue to give 10% of all that he would ever receive in life back to God. He just made that commitment to God. Seemed random if you just read it by itself, but then we remember, oh yeah, that's what his grandfather did. Abraham, Genesis 28, 22, is where that happened with Jacob. The Old Testament is very clear that Jacob made his own personal decision to let God, Yahweh, be his God. This is faith. By contrast, Esau didn't seem to give a rip about the promise of God until after it was too late. As our text says, even though he sought repentance with tears, he could not find it. Now notice it doesn't say Esau repented. It says he sought repentance but couldn't find it. Couldn't find repentance. What was he crying about? He was crying that he lost his birthright, not that he had sinned. Esau never really got to the point of repentance because he never really had faith in God or admitted that his error was a lack of faith in God. As I always say, true faith is repentant faith. But the faith of Jacob becomes very clear in the rest of the story. You may remember in perhaps his most famous encounter, Jacob wrestled with God all night, wound up with a hip problem, right? His hip was actually put out of joint if you recall. Now rewind three verses back in Hebrews to verse 13. The people who were not responding to God's discipline were in danger of having a limb put out of joint. Remember? Maybe that thought is what started the author thinking about Jacob and Esau. I don't know, but it might be summed up. The lesson on these two brothers might be summed up like this. It is better to limp with God than to feast without him. It is better to limp with God than to feast without Him. Something like that. But how does this all apply to the better family of God, the church? Well, we've been talking about two brothers, right? 
they were members of the same family. Esau grieved his parents by making bad choices. Jacob was more obedient, but took something by deceit from his brother. Still, it is a mistake to make them out as equally evil. One made the family better by faith. The other nearly destroyed it. Verse 16 says, Esau, not Jacob, was immoral and godless. Says that about one of the brothers, not the other. I studied these words, and I won't go far into the details, but the original word here for immoral is pornos. And so it may be obvious to you that this is refers to sexual immorality. Esau was sexually immoral, according to God's definition. For the record, the Bible absolutely singles out sexual immorality as a more severe kind of sin than most. Sexual immorality is portrayed as more damaging, and it carries heavier consequences than most other sins in the Bible. That's a fact. In Esau's case, sexual immorality led to many pagan wives. What happened with their children of those wives? What happened with their children and their children? Nothing good. Let's just say Esau's was not a better family. Additionally, the word godless here means that Esau was more concerned with temporal things than eternal things. Hmm. That's not relevant to anyone here today, I'm sure. Now, we, were, we already know this about Esau. He chose a bowl of stew over faith in the promise of God. In fact, this word means that Esau didn't care about eternal or spiritual things even one little bit. Probably would have had a hard time sitting through a 50-minute sermon. He was not a man of faith at all. He didn't look to the unseen. This man only cared about things like hunting and eating and sex. That's all he cared about. That's what he cared about. That's what he lived for. Esau's life had little room for God. He was not, his was not, a better family. Now, the question for us is this. <clears throat> what if we have people like Esau in our church? That's exactly what the author is saying. Do you think it might cause some problems if that's kind of who we are? What if we were to have people like this in leadership? And what if somebody who isn't normally like this is like this for a season? What if many of our dads, just to pick on men for a minute, applies to women as well. But what if many of our dads are more interested in football and pornography than Jesus? Uh-oh, that's the case. They will not have a better family, nor will our church be a better family because of their presence. Don't worry. I'm not saying you can't like football. Whew, close one. Baseball is way better than football, but the question is, are you more like Jacob or more like Esau? Are you making this a better family or a worse one? Well, how dare you say that? Well, read the Bible. Read it. When's the last time you had an encounter with God? What's the when's the last time you sought the Lord by faith with all your heart for an extended period of prayer and, and Bible study, maybe even with fasting, like the people of faith we read about in Scripture? Have you wrestled with God all night long, ever, recently, lately, like Jacob did? Did you wind up with a limb, put out a joint to help you remember a limp? Are you really just more interested in a good bowl of chowder? Give me some of that red stuff there. 
as Esau. Maybe his God was his stomach. Now look, no family is perfect. Point is that if we walk by faith as a family, by the way, I hunt, I like football, and I like the other thing I mentioned too. I won't go any further than that. Don't want to turn anybody red over there. No family's perfect. But the point is that if we walk by faith as a family, it's going to be a better family. Right? I mean, that's the contrast between Jacob and Esau here in our text. It boils down to faith. By the way, Jacob was renamed Israel, which basically means God wins. And Esau was renamed Edom, which basically means red dirt. That's right. One was renamed God wins and the other red dirt. Get the idea? One followed the unseen God, caring much less about tertiary things, while the other was so focused on earthly stuff that folks just took to calling him dirt or something like that. Our church family would be better if we had more Jacobs than Esau's. That's what I'm saying. We want to be people who follow after God with faith, not people who show up now and then if we provide Chick-fil-A. And see, this balance, this balances the point. It balances the point earlier about grace, doesn't it? People get a little nervous about grace. Well, this balances. A better family not only receives grace, but a better family walks, or at least limps, by faith. For a better church family, pursue peace, receive grace, and walk by faith. These are our first three steps to becoming a better family at Go Church. Now, quickly, let me give you a homework assignment. I didn't have time today to tell you how most of this can be applied to your natural family, you know, like husband and wife and kids, and if you have them, or if you're single, then yourself and perhaps your siblings, maybe your parents, however you look at it. So that's your assignment, to find out how these principles can be applied to your family. Feel free to share your thoughts with me, uh, email me or whatever, or others, maybe your go group, if something strikes you. There's your homework. How do these points apply? How does the scripture apply to your natural family? All right, so let me pray as I close. Father, thank you so much for your word and uh, the meat of it. And Lord, I, I hope and I think that we all have some things to think about. And today was certainly uh, even, even more than, than is always the case, a message to the church. Uh, and, and so I just pray that this church would be changed through your word, that we would grow, that we would indeed become a better family because your word is powerful and it changes us if we let it, if we respond. Help us to be doers of the word, not merely hearers. Make us a stronger church, a healthier church, not so worried about whether we're a bigger church, but I'd love it be a better church, a more impactful church, a better family. We've not arrived. There's so many ways we let each other down. Um, I do pray, God, that this church would become a family that, where people could feel like they got brothers here, they got sisters here, they have a father and God, and we're just doing life together trying to follow Jesus as a family.
in a world that many times, in many ways, uh, hates us. We need each other and help us to respond to any hatred with love. And let our message be clear that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but will have everlasting life for you did not come to condemn the world but to save the world help us be your messengers Lord change our hearts in Jesus name amen thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast if you enjoyed the sermon be sure to rate and review us if you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons check out our website www.go.org gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.